Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzen, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I would invite you to turn your copies of the Scripture this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 10. Be reading verses 42 through 45. And as we read God's word together, would you stand with me out of reverence and respect for the word of God? And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may we run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge our hearts. And so, Lord, enlarge our hearts. Set them free today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. may be seated. It's the most wonderful time of the year. At least that's what we're told, isn't it? It's what we've become to believe because many people, if you would ask them, they would say the Christmas season is a season that they enjoy, that they love most of all. Have you ever thought, though, why is it a wonderful time of year? Is it wonderful because... Kids are jingling bells? Is it wonderful because everyone's telling you to be of good cheer? 
Is it wonderful because of the parties you're hosting, the marshmallows you're toasting, the caroling out in the snow? Is it wonderful because there will be much mistletoeing? That hearts will be glowing because loved ones are near? Now we know that it's a pipe dream, right? For so many family get-togethers, where you leave less than your hearts be glowing. Don't get me wrong. I do believe there should be wonder and amazement that fills our hearts at this time. But it's not because of any human activities that we do. No, it's wonderful because of the divine activity, the supernatural activity, something that God has done in this world, something that God has done in the course of human history, something that God has done in space and time, something that is so wonderful, so marvelous, so amazing, that it fills our hearts to the extent that all of those other human activities pale in in comparison to what we've known God to do. And so what is it that God has done? God has sent His only Son. God of very God. God has sent His Son into the world. This is the reason to celebrate because of the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen, what? His glory. That as of the only God, full of grace and truth. Miracles of miracles, mystery of mysteries, wonder of wonders, grace of all graces, God, the eternal Son, has come to earth. What a stroke of luck for us, right? Aren't we the most lucky people? But it was no luck. It was the way God had designed it to happen. Planned it from before the foundation of the world. The eternal Son of God had come into the world. We might not like to hear that because it might conjure up in our minds an idea that somehow the Son was forced into this world by the Father. Forced against His will. But it was not that he was forced. He had to come. And there was also a desire for him to come because he came with a purpose. There was a reason why the Son of God had to come into this world. And we cannot and must not divorce our celebration of the fact that Jesus came into the world with the knowledge of why he came and what he came to do. Too many might like to leave Jesus in the manger, leave him as a baby, small, weak, helpless, frail, and fragile. Jesus doesn't come to stay as a baby for us to gush over him about how cute he is. No, he came because the world needed him to come. He came to come to accomplish what you and I could never accomplish for ourselves, no matter how much we tried. He had to come into this world for us. And there's no other way that it could have been done. It is the only way, it is the way it had to happen. Jesus had to come into this world, and that's what we will be 
seeking to find out over these next few weeks, why was it that Jesus had to come? What does, what does the Bible tell us about why Jesus had to come? And we start with this truth this morning, that Jesus had to come into the world to serve. There was a man who lived in the early 1800s named John Williams. John Williams was converted at George Whitfield's Tabernacle in London. Three years after his conversion, John Williams sailed for the South Pacific. And beginning in Tahiti and going to Ratonga and to Samoa, he began to preach the gospel to this very dark place. People who were oppressed, spiritually oppressed. Here's what it says about these people that he went to. Their deities, like themselves, were all selfish and malignant. They breathed no spirit of benevolence. And the rewards and punishments of the future state were connected more with ritual observance than with moral character. Their religion contained no principle that could lead to a holy life. They certainly thought that their gods were like themselves and that they approved of their sins. And as John Williams traveled through these various islands, preaching the gospel, churches were formed. They were converted They heard the gospel and they believed. After 18 years of doing this, John Williams went back to England. And he was not there very long before he had the desire to go back. To go back to this area. Particularly, he had his mind set on reaching a set of islands called the New Hebrides. 30 islands scattered over 400 miles. He came to the first island named Aramanga. It was there that he landed in a place known as Dillon's Bay. Right after he landed, he was immediately killed by the people who lived on that island. And a monument was erected there for him that said this sacred to the memory of the reverend john williams father of the samoan and other missions aged 43 and 5 months who was killed by the cruel natives of aramanga on the 20th november 1839 while endeavoring to plant the gospel peace on its shores two men One named George Turner, another named Henry Nisbet, were inspired by the life of John Williams. They went back to those islands and began to spread the gospel, even on an island called Tana that no one had been to, which was a cannibalistic island. And because of John Williams, hundreds of Teachers actually went to those areas to spread the truth of the gospel because that man had given his life to that, to spread gospel peace on their shores, even though his life ended in death. What life of 
service did he live for his Savior? And I wonder, as we read these verses this morning, if we see the service of Christ, how Christ came to this world, had to come into this world to serve. We live in a culture that is highly attentive to our rights. Do you know your rights? Are you exercising your rights? What are your unalienable rights? It's what our country was founded upon where the Declaration of Independence states that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what so often happens, not only in our culture, but what happens in many other people's hearts and lives as well throughout the ages, we've weaponized our rights. That is how easy it is for us to use our rights to hurt other people, to trample upon other people, to destroy other people, all in the name of exercising our rights. And how often we elevate something that we want, something that we desire as a right, because if it's our right, then who can go against us? Who can tell us no? We're not that much different from a toddler in that respect, are we? A toddler does not like to be told no, and how often do we not like to be told no either? Because if someone would dare tell us no, they're infringing upon my rights. We are all too familiar with the economy of this world, but does God's kingdom look any different than this? Should it look any different than this? Does the truth that Jesus came into the world have any impact upon how we might view our rights? And I would argue that it does and it must if we rightly understand that Jesus came into this world to serve. What does Jesus' service tell us about him and tell us about the world that we live in and tell us about how we are to live? Three, three uh, characteristics this morning that we pull from these verses. Number one, you can follow along in your bulletin if that's helpful, but number one, Jesus coming... To serve shows his humility. Jesus coming to serve shows his humility. Perhaps this is what we are often familiar with when it comes to the birth account. Of course we know the humility of Jesus. We know that he was born as a baby. We know that he was born to no status parents. We know that they were not well off. They had nothing. They had to deliver him in a dirty, unsterile barn. They laid him in his first bed that was a place where animals fed. What humility did Jesus know from the very first moments of his birth? A humility that would maybe even make us blush in shame if that were our beginnings. We can resonate with that humility on a human level, on a level of human experience, but it's more difficult for us to understand the humility on a divine level. Humility where God humbled himself. What is that like? 
think about our lives and the fact that we, as Christians, promote humility, don't we? Why is it that we promote humility? Because we are prideful. The very foundation of our sin is the sin of pride. And what is pride? Pride is an anti-God state of mind. That's why we need to be humble. That's why we need humility. But guess what? God has no pride. He doesn't begin at an anti-state of mind, an anti-God state of mind. He is God. He rightly thinks highly of himself because he is God. We think of ourselves as God and are wrong. We are not God. But God humbled himself. It should shock us that God would humble himself. God should not be humbling himself. He's God. But this is what God does. This is where Jesus himself starts in Mark 10.45. Look at what it says. For even the Son of Man. Notice how Jesus refers to himself. Not as Jesus the Christ. Not as the Son of God. But as the Son of Man. Why this title? Jesus is purposefully using this title to call our minds back to the Old Testament and specifically to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. If you would look there for one moment. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel 7. Beginning in verse 13, going through verse 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is the one that the Jews were looking for. This one who is the son of man. What kind of son of man were they expecting? A son of man who was given dominion. Son of man who was given glory. Son of man who was given a kingdom. How highly and exalted is this son of man? And what was everyone going to do with him? All peoples, all nations, all languages would serve him. That is the right given to the Son of Man. That is the right given to this king who is to rule over all. And now what does Jesus say in Mark 10.45? Here I am, the Son of Man, standing in your midst. The Son of Man who has come to earth. Why? What did Jesus say? Here I am, the Son of Man. Bow down and serve me. Don't you know what I deserve? Don't you know what rights I have as the Son of Man? Don't you know how powerful I am? Don't you know how great I am? Don't you know what you should give to me? Is that what Jesus says? No, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served. Look at that little magnificent word, even. Who else is ultimately deserving of being served? 
Who else is there that is greater that one could give service to? Who else has the right to demand such service? It is no one other than the Son of Man. But even the Son of Man, even the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, even he did not come to be served. What humility that you would not demand what you rightly deserve, that you would rightly humble yourself. Jesus could have said, don't you know who I am? Don't you know the extent of my dominion? Don't you know how long my dominion will last? But even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Even though he had the right to be served, he gave up that right. He even willingly denied that right. And he willingly gave it up because that's not why he had come. We think about that other little word there, came. We know that when Jesus uses that word, he's not using it in the sense that he came into existence. Jesus is not saying, I came into existence not to be served. Rather, it is a word that should push us back and see that he is the pre-existent son. He's referring not to the fact that he came into existence when he was born, but that he came from somewhere else where he was before he came into the world. So where did Jesus come from? He came from heaven. From heaven he came and sought us. He came from that place where he was in perfect fellowship with God the Father and God the Spirit. A place where there was no sin. A place where there was no death. A place where he knew only glory, only perfection, only holiness, only majesty and worship. In order to begin to understand this, let us call on the Apostle John who recounts what it's like to be in God's throne room from Revelation 4. Revelation 4, beginning in verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne there were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night. They never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. 
And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. That is what Jesus had known. Jesus' humility is not merely seen in what he had come into in this world. His humility is known from a level of understanding what it is he left. He left heaven. He left the throne room of God. He left ultimate bliss and joy. He didn't leave one place where he was served to be served in another place. He left a place of perfection, not to be served, but to serve. He left the heights of heaven to serve in the depths of darkness. If this humility of Christ has become ho-hum to you, look at it afresh, my friend. Look at how Jesus humbled himself, abased himself, left everything to come into this fallen, broken, and sinful world to serve. And I struggle and wrestle leaving the comfort of my own chair, the comfort of my own couch. I struggle to get up to serve my wife and my kids. I just sat down. I just got comfortable. I just need to rest. Don't you know the long day that I've had? I deserve this. But Jesus didn't come to serve, dragging his feet, mumbling under his breath about how inconvenient it was for him. He doesn't hold it over our heads all that he left for us. Don't you know what I've done? Don't you know how good I had it? Don't you know how much I sacrificed just to come here? No, he came to serve stinky, smelly, dirty, unholy, helpless sinners. The Son of God, the Son of Man would even come and would wrap a towel around his waist. He would get down on his knees. He would take dirty and stinky, excrement-slathered feet of his disciples and he would wash them because he loved them. He came from God the Father, came from the perfection of heaven, came from the holy of holies, not to be served, but to serve. It was the very priority of Jesus. He had to do it. He had to serve. Philippians 2, 5, and 8, 5 through 8 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. How? By subtraction? No. You see it there? By addition. By taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus coming to serve shows his humility. Number two, Jesus coming to serve shows the purpose of his death. Jesus coming to serve shows the purpose of his death. It's from this vantage point 
For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, that we are brought into a deeper understanding by Christ of what his service looked like. How was the Son of Man's service expressed in the most ultimate and supreme fashion? Jesus serves by giving. Jesus serves by giving not just enough, not just the minimal amount. Tell me how much I must give and no further. No, Jesus' service was an extreme service because Jesus' giving was an extreme giving. It was the giving of his life, the giving of his own soul, giving everything we might say. What more is there that he could give? Jesus himself said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Jesus served by giving his life. But there was a reason why Jesus had to give his life. In chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus had just foretold his death for the third time. Three times now in the book of Mark, The disciples have heard Jesus say, I'm going to be delivered over. I'm going to be condemned to death. I'm going to be mocked, beaten, spit upon, shamed, and killed. And three days later, I will rise again from the dead. But now Jesus begins to pour meaning into this impending death. What does it mean that Jesus is going to die? What does it mean that Jesus is going to give his life, his soul, his everything? What's the reason? Jesus is going to die because people need a ransom. Jesus gave his life as a ransom. This word ransom speaks to us on many different levels. It speaks to us on the level of first our own condition. We are those who need a ransom. We are those who are in captivity. Those who are bound with no way of escape. Those who are unable to free ourselves. That is us. We were the ones bound. We were the ones in captivity. We were the ones chained to our sin and to death with no way of escape, with no way out. So Ransom tells us that we were those who were captive. Ransom also speaks a word of payment. That is what a ransom is. It's a payment made so that those who are held captive and in bondage can be set free. That is what we need. And since we cannot and could never pay our own ransom, we need someone else to make that payment for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, must make that payment on our behalf. But who does he pay? Does he pay sin and death? Those are things that are not persons. They can't be paid. Does he pay Satan? Is it Satan to whom Jesus owes this payment? That Jesus would make the necessary payment to him so that we could be released from sin and death? No, this isn't the payment to Satan. Satan is no determiner of the souls or of final judgment. No, this payment is made by the Son of Man to God the Father. He is the ultimate determiner of souls. And all those who are bound in their sin, who remain in their guilt, will, be, will perish and will be cast into the lake of fire. 
But that is why Jesus came, to make the payment so that people would not die in their sin and in their guilt and know the final judgment of God. But now, let's come back to that payment for a moment. What did Jesus pay God the Father with? Did Jesus come raising support so that he could raise enough money to buy these souls out of their captivity? No. No amount of money would have been adequate payment for the act of treason and rebellion the sinners committed against the most holy and righteous God. No, this payment was much more costly. The payment made was the very life and the very blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1.18 says this, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was the perfect payment of Christ's blood that atoned for our sin, that made the required payment. And with that little word there in Mark 10, 45, that little word for, we began to see the idea of the reality that Jesus paid the ransom price for us. It highlights exchange and substitution. We are those bound and enslaved and trapped by our own sins. We were the ones, we are the ones who deserved to die for our own sins. The ones who should have had the judgment and wrath of God fall upon us for our sins. That is what we rightly deserved, but in Jesus Christ paying the ransom, he took our place. He took the judgment of God upon himself. He took the wrath of God upon himself. He took the place of sinners. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. And he did this, it says, for many. Who are the many? It's all those who would be saved. All those who would put their faith and trust in the finished work Jesus Christ did upon the cross. All those who believe that not only did he die, but he also rose again from the dead on the third day. It's believers in Jesus Christ, those who have confessed him as Lord, who know him to be their ransom. It says this about the many and other verses in the Bible. Mark 14, 24, listen to what Jesus says here. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Hebrews 9.28 says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Notice, it is many. It is not all. It puts before us an important truth. Christ's sacrificial death actually brings salvation to people. It doesn't make salvation merely possible for people. No, his death is effectual. It does something. It actually saves sinners. And we cannot help but hear the ringing of Isaiah 53 in our ears when we read this verse. Because here in Mark 45 Jesus' own words, what is he doing? He's saying, I am the suffering servant. 
I've come not to be served, I've come to serve as the suffering servant. And then this is what we hear in Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his, lay, his days. The, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And listen to this. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is what Jesus Christ has done for us, those who have believed in him, the many, since the sacrifice that Christ has given to us. This is how he has served us. This is the work that Christ has done. And as we take a step back, let the whole verse, Mark 10, 45, that whole verse, let that whole verse fill our view we see this, that this is how the kingdom of the Son of Man is inaugurated. This is the path to dominion over all things. It's the self-sacrificing, self-substituting, ransom-paying Savior, crucified on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin that leads to glory. That is why Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve, because he knew that was the path to that place in Daniel 7 when all peoples and all nations and all languages would serve him. It was through the cross and there is no greater example of service that you will ever be able to know than the service of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. Number three. Jesus coming to serve exemplifies how you are to serve. Jesus coming to serve exemplifies how you are to serve. At this point, you should be thinking that I have done you a great injustice. So far, I have honed in on one verse and separated it from the context of what's been happening in the rest of the text. But don't worry, I haven't forgotten. I've just been saving it. Verse 45 comes at the end of a section. Jesus foretells his death for the third time in verses 32 and 34. And he has encountered, then he has an encounter with his disciples. And as you follow the book of Mark, you see this pattern. Jesus predicts, foretells his death, and then he gives a lesson on discipleship. Each time he does this, and so this time it's no different. He predicts his death, foretells his death, and now he's going to follow it up with a lesson on discipleship. And it comes, this lesson comes to us through an interaction with James and John. James and John, they're the sons of Zebedee. They're the sons who at the beginning of the book of Mark had left everything. They left their nets as they were fishermen. They left the boat where their father was. They left everything to follow Jesus Christ. James and John were considered to be in the inner circle of Jesus Christ. 
three men considered to be there, James and John and Peter. If you were to look on the face of this earth for people who are closer to Christ, you couldn't find anyone, any people more qualified than James and John. And what do James and John do? They come to Jesus. They say this to Jesus. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I call that blank check Christianity. Just give me the check. Let me fill it in. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I mean, it's like they're setting him up, aren't they? And yet how many Christians come into church on Sundays saying the exact same thing? Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Like, genie, like Jesus is a genie in a bottle that's going to grant them some magical wishes. That Jesus is someone to be consumed. Rather than someone to be worshipped. And Jesus... There with James and John goes along with him. What do you want me to do? Let me let us sit. One at your right hand and one at your left hand. That's what we want. Oh, that's all. Jesus, in your glory, we want the places of prominence. We want the places of position. We want the places where everybody will see us, where everyone will know our name. They will know how great we, we are. We will have power. We will have authority. We will have everything. Give us those places at your right hand and at your left hand. And Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I will be baptized with? What is Jesus saying? I am going to have to drink the cup of God's wrath. Do you want to drink that cup? I am going to have to go under God's judgment. That's what baptism is. You go under the water to demonstrate that you are under God's judgment. Are you going to go under God's judgment like I'm going to go under God's judgment? (laughs) Of course we are, Jesus. Jesus says to them, you will undergo suffering. You will know hardship because of my name. But to grant you to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It's been prepared by someone else. But then he gives them this lesson, doesn't he? And he calls the disciples. And all the disciples, after they hear James and John, they're angry. It says they're indignant. They're mad. How dare James and John go to Jesus and ask him for those places of prominence? Maybe it's because we would have liked to have asked Jesus for those places of prominence. They beat us to the punch. They're indignant. (laughs) They're childish. Earlier in Mark, Jesus had come and he'd set a child in their midst. And he said, the one who is like this child will enter the kingdom of God, will receive the kingdom of God. For to such belongs the kingdom, these children. And the disciples here aren't acting childlike, they're acting childish, aren't they? squabbling about their own prominence, squabbling about their own position, squabbling about their own pride even. And then Jesus gives us this lesson. This is what's going to happen. 
God's economy is different than the world's economy. In God's kingdom, you must be a servant. First, he talks about the world's economy, doesn't he? The Gentiles, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over. They lord their authority, they lord their power over other people. They use it, they misuse, they abuse their authority to get what they want. That's the economy of this world. That's the economy that we know as we look around in our world. But then what does Jesus say in verse 43? But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you, whoever would be first among you, you want to know true greatness in God's kingdom. You want to know true greatness in God's economy. You want to know what it means to be in God's kingdom. You have to be a servant. That word servant is the word that we get deacon from. What's a deacon? Deacon is someone who serves. Someone that we recognize and say, this person's service is helpful to the church. We recognize it. It's good. We set them and say, this is someone's service that is, to, that is exemplary. To, to be an example to us. But notice, which Christians are called to serve? All Christians are called to serve. You want to be great? Serve. And look what it says. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So here it's within the context, I think, of the disciples. You need to serve one another. But then it progresses. Jesus makes it more difficult. And and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. What happens when I say, you must be a servant, and then go and say, you must be a slave? Servant, yes, I would love to be a servant. You want me to serve? That's great. How about a slave? Let's pump the brakes a little bit. I don't know if that's what I want. And notice what Jesus says. You have to be a slave of all. Slave of everyone? Slave of all? I don't know if I could do that. There's a weight that Jesus puts upon us here. How is it? How is it that I can be a slave? How is it that I can be able to fulfill these responsibilities? How is it that I can do what Christ has called me to do as a servant and a slave of all? Because guess what? Slaves have. They have no rights. They don't say. When they're given a command, yeah, well, but, except, I'm the exception to the rule. No, you're a slave. You have nothing. You own nothing. You have no rights. You are the lowest of the low. You are a slave. And that Jesus would say, if you want to be first in God's kingdom, you have to be a slave of everyone. You have to think lowly of yourself. You have to humble yourself. Not exalt yourself to a place of, of position and, promises, uh, and, and promise. Not, not jockey for position in the church. No, you have to be a slave of everyone. But this is what Jesus says. You must be a slave. And not a slave who gets to pick and choose. It's no small order that we are meant to feel the weight of this. It's meant to be heavy 
Because Jesus is asking nothing less than self-sacrifice. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. And we are so terribly weak. I am so terribly weak. And so broken. I don't know really what it is to serve. I don't know what it is to be a slave until I stand in the shadow of the cross. That's the reason why I give myself to service. That's the reason why I say, it's okay that I'm a slave. It's okay that I'm a slave of everyone. What's the reason? Because Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came and he died. He gave his life as a ransom for many. It is the great love of Christ's self-substituting sacrifice that so served us to save us that it becomes the ground for why and for how we can become servants and slaves one unto another. Because of Christ's sacrifice, he has set you free to be a servant and a slave. Have this mind in yourselves that was in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humility, service, and sacrifice are characteristics of the kingdom. Are you in the kingdom? Are you truly a disciple of Jesus? If you are, then the characteristics of the master are imprinted upon your way of thinking, your way of relating, and your heart so that you willingly and wantingly will say, yes, I am a slave of all. And I would give everything. I would sacrifice to give myself to these people. I would serve them by being in church. I would serve them by speaking the word of God into their lives. I would serve them by encouraging them Praying for them, praying with them, reading the Bible with them. I would be a slave by getting out of my own comfort zone, humbling myself, and seek to build deep, meaningful relationships with one another in being a slave to one another. In this way, you're not merely giving yourself to others. You're serving Christ. How far is this service of being a slave supposed to go? How much is it going to require of you? How much is it going to stretch you? It's going to require the greatest sacrifice of all because it's going to require this. Stop loving yourself. Revelation 12.11 says this. Of those who follow God of those who follow Jesus Christ. And they have conquered him, that's the beast, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Why? How is it that they conquered? For they loved their for they loved not their lives even unto death. That's the life of Christians. We are those who love not our lives, even if it means death. Even if it would mean someone like John Williams would go to preach the gospel of peace on shores that knew, that knew no peace, 
and yet die. Jesus came to serve by giving his life, and now he calls us to serve by giving our lives to him. Let's pray. Father, may your word have its perfect work in us. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who does not know, does not know this sacrifice, does not know that Jesus paid the ransom for them, that today they would say, I need that. I need to be freed from my sin. I need to be freed from death. I need to be freed from this burden of guilt that is weighing me down because of my sin. That they would look to Jesus Christ. And that they would find forgiveness. They would find eternal life. They would find grace, hope, and love. That you would so do a work in their heart where they would realize I cannot go on in this life serving, living for myself because that only leads to emptiness. But that they would give their lives to you and want to serve you, know you, and that they would look to Jesus Christ who came, who had to come, not to be served, but to serve. And who gave his life as a ransom for many. Lord, help us to serve, to be a slave of all as we are stamped in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our wills, in our affections, they are stamped with the imprint of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.